92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello, welcome to the Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good as a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with a partner. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming at novices and those who have struggled to read the Bible in the past. If that describes you or people you know, uh, give it a look. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're in the book of Revelation, a challenging book, but a great book, understandable and applicable, especially if you get a little bit of help. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we did the six trumpets of Revelation 8 and 9. That show and all the previous shows are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify under the word diet. So if you missed last week or any of the weeks before that, I would encourage you to check out uh, the podcast, especially on Spotify. That's the easiest place to find them. The last two verses of chapter nine had the people's failure to repent in response to the seven seals and the first six trumpets. So that takes us then to a two vision interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Chapter 10 is the little scroll, and chapter 11 is the more famous uh, chapter about the two witnesses. Both of these emphasize that God is in control and will reward his servants. Now, you might remember or know at least that Revelation 7 had a similar parenthesis between the sixth and seventh seals. That was the 144,000 who were sealed and the great multitude, the church militant and the church triumphant. And both of those intended to bring hope and encouragement to instill courage and faithfulness, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that's a huge theme in the book of Revelation. As a literary matter, the parentheses enhance our anticipation. We stopped at the sixth seal, took a break, came back, the seventh seal set up the trumpets. And then we get to the sixth seal, and that, or the sixth trumpet, and we take another break. And that's what we're covering today. And as Metzger, uh, Bruce Metzger points out, the effect is tantalizing. We keep wanting to get to the next part of the story, but uh, John and Christ through John are slowing things down for us to look at this, this parenthesis. And it's a good one too. So look forward to covering 10 and most of 11 in today's episode. So we'll take a break uh, and we'll be back in a minute to get rolling. Dependable, trustworthy, pure radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. This week we're in Revelation 10 and 11, the parenthesis between the the first six and the final seventh trumpet. Lord, be with us as we talk through this passage. It's a challenging passage. I pray that you would uh, bring to mind the things that you want me to say I pray for open ears as well, and Lord, we, we just want to understand you uh, better as a result of this. We want to love you and love others more effectively because of this show and what we're going to talk about today. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. Okay, so I'm going to read all of chapter 10. So if you're not driving, you you can close your eyes or read along. Verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So in verses 1 through 4, the two big questions are, who is the angel, and what is the book? Verse 1 says that another mighty angel was coming down from heaven. A lot of parallels to Christ here uh, in the description. We'll talk about that in just in just a minute. But it does use the phrase another angel, which makes it seem like it's not Christ. And then the being is not worshipped by John. So probably we can eliminate Christ as a candidate. Uh, most commentators see this as an archangel, right? Not just a an angel, but something uh, more impressive than that. And representing Christ and even resembling him in some ways. Verse 1 describes him as robed in a cloud, the rainbow above his head. We saw that of God in chapter 4, verse 3. His face is like the sun. We saw that of Christ in chapter 1, verse 16. And it's the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 2, says his face shone like the sun. And legs like fiery pillars, and that's reminiscent of chapter 1, verse 15, the bronze feet of Christ in that introductory chapter. The rainbow is symbolic of God's covenant with Noah, and practically here it would be caused by the light of the angel's face shining through the cloud that is the robing of verse 1. Now the angel is holding a little scroll, and it's opened in his hand. So a few things to say here. First, it's a little scroll. So it could be that there's less to say than the scroll we saw earlier, or it might imply at the same time that there's little time to go. There does seem to be increased urgency as this passage unfolds. The word here is related to biblion, which is the word for scroll. And the usual word for scroll is actually repeated in chapter 10, verse 8. But this does, so commentators have gone back and forth on whether this is the same uh, scroll or it's it's going, uh, making a reference Uh, to the same thing. Perhaps it's a distilled, reduced version of what we saw earlier. 
The fact that it's open in his hand implies that it's available, accessible, at least to John. And there is some wrestling with whether this is a new revelation or it's uh, related to what's already been revealed. Another question here is why does this take place at this point? And I think it's that the limited judgments that we've seen earlier do not lead to widespread repentance, as we saw at the end of chapter 9. And so whatever this is, given that the judgments have not encouraged repentance, in a way this might be saying, look, this is all that's left. Uh, here's a little revelation. Here's a, here it is short and sweet for you. Uh, it's not that God's patience has ended here, but if, if what has come before doesn't work, what will work? And the answer to that is the little scroll. It also is answered by what happens in chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11 is the witness of the church, which we'll talk about today, particularly under persecution. And then uh, another variation on that theme is chapter 12 can be the emergence of the new covenant with the incarnation of Jesus. But either way, it's still emphasizing the church's faithful witness to that, as we'll see at the end of chapter 12. So it seems like God's judgments here are partnered with the faithful witness of the church, and that is God's best way to reach other people. And I think we see that in evangelism as well, right? It's God's miracles, it's God's judgments, it's God's working, but the witness of the church is is essential to God's plan to reach the world, the stubborn world that doesn't want to turn to God, despite the judgments, despite the miracles. Verse 2 is powerful. The right foot is on the sea, the left foot is on the land after verse 1, coming down from heaven in the air. So you've got land, sea, and air all taken care of in these first two verses, which implies that the words of this angel apply to all creation. And it also points to certain universal judgment. We can also look at this as just pointing to his size and power. The sea is representative of evil and the unknown. And so God is in control of that. And the right foot is on the sea, as if walking on the ladder, uh, the water, and as uh, as if he is just as steady on the sea as on the land. And again, tremendous power and sovereignty there. The other intriguing possibility is more figurative, and it's that the sea is often used to describe the Gentiles, and the land is often used to describe the Jews in the Bible. And so perhaps this is part of the mystery that we'll talk about in verse 7. Ephesians 3 talks about a Jew-Gentile mystery, and so that may be part of what's happening in this passage as well. He gives a loud lion-like shout. This wording is used of God in the Old Testament prophets, and of course we know Christ is the Lion of Judah. So although, again, the angel is probably not Christ, there's certainly a lot of parallels there. And this shout is accompanied by the voices of the seven thunders. Here I would uh, commend Psalm 29 to your reading. There's a uh, seven-fold description of the voice of the Lord there, and it really fits nicely with what, what's talked about here in chapter 10, verse 3. So in verse 4, hearing them speak, John was about to write, but then he's told to seal it up and not to write it down. And this is uh, appears elsewhere in the scriptures as well. Daniel 8, 26, Daniel 12, verses 4 and 9 have the same sort of arrangement. It's reminiscent of Acts 1, 7, where Christ tells the disciples, it's not for you to know the times or dates 
Now, at the end of Revelation, we'll see the opposite of this. Chapter 22, verse 10 says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy. And this is the expressed purpose of Revelation, to reveal. So it's interesting that uh, this particular revelation is hidden. It's not to be written down uh, for us to see. So this is something for John's limited ears only. And again, for a literary purpose, it's pretty in intriguing, right? That you read this and you're like, wow, what, what could that be? Uh, it's, so it's more intriguing to figure it out. One possibility, going back to some math that we've seen, is remember that the seals had one-fourth, uh, the trumpets had one-third judgment, and so maybe this is one-half as we're marching through the fractions. We're going to get to complete judgment uh, at, uh, later in Revelation, but maybe one-half is too severe. Maybe one-half would have effectively compromised free will. So we don't know that it's a half. Let me make that clear. But if there's a pattern of increasing intensity, maybe it was one-quarter, one-third, and then maybe this is a half that is suppressed. The other point to make there is that the, the threatened judgments and the actual judgments haven't been effective and so maybe the idea here is that, you know, cranking it up another notch to one half would also be ineffective, that something else is required, and that something else is going to be covered in chapters 11 and 12. In any case, it's clearly saying that all we and John's audience need to know or can know is contained in the revelation from God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or what Paul uh, writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, that he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So John receives a special revelation, which would have been wonderful for him, but it's either more than we can handle or more than we need to know. Sometimes we experience this in the Christian life. Sometimes through the Spirit of God, we do things that are uh, amazing there for us, and communicating them to others can be somewhere between awkward and troubling. And so sometimes there, we just have experiences where it's just for us. It's not something that can be communicated effectively. And that's what John has here. All right, verses 5 through 7 is more on the angel. Verse 5, the angel raises his right hand to heaven, which is part of oath-taking. Verse 6, swears to God, describing him as the eternal creator of the threefold heavens, earth, and sea, and all that is in them. It's a beautiful verse. God is eternal. God is the creator. Again, this would, would be really encouraging to John's audience or anyone going through persecution. Verse 6 continues that there'll be no more delay. Remember that back in chapter 6, 10, and 11, the question was, how long? And that has been answered a couple times now, right? That God is taking care of business. He's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over creation. And verse 7 says the mystery of God will be accomplished. This is reminiscent of what, of what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, under Christ. And again, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, he's going to come back to that mystery as Jewish-Gentile unity. So this is a tough passage, but I like what William Barclay says at this point. He says, beyond all the strangeness of this picture stands the truth that history is moving towards the inevitable triumph of God. Whatever else it says, it certainly says that. 
Okay, this is a good place for us to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry within God's kingdom. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, we uh, got through Revelation 10, 1 through 7, which is uh, the angel and the little scroll. We've got four more verses to get to in this segment before we get to chapter 11 and the two witnesses. So we'll pick it up in chapter 10, verse 8. There a voice from heaven again instructs John here to take the scroll. And John goes to the angel in verse 9 who tells him to take it and eat it. It's a small thing, but John is told to take it twice, verses 8 and 9, which emphasizes John's role in accepting this task. Eating is figurative for appropriating the contents of the book. And there are many applications here, right? First of all, the message and the messenger cannot be separated. Or we think about our ministry and our evangelism. St. Francis of Assisi is said to have said that we should preach the gospel often and use words if necessary. And so there's certainly a time for words, but the message and the messenger cannot be separated. The way we live our daily lives uh, along with our words should point people to Jesus. We might also apply this to reading, studying, and memorizing scripture, that it should be part of it. It should not just be a Bible we carry around or have on a shelf. It should be in our hearts. And you, you do that through reading, studying, and memorizing. And then we can also apply it to spirit-filled living and the sweet communion that we have with God and Jesus through the Holy Spirit inside of us. The picture continues here vividly. He's told correctly, it turns out, verses 9 and 10, that it would taste as sweet as honey, but would turn his stomach sour. Commentators have done a lot with this, as you might imagine, uh, the pictures here. Uh, some say that it represents both the glory and the sorrow of both this revelation and the gospel. For John and for us, it's comforting to us personally, but it's bittersweet in that it, in that it allows us to see the fallen world more clearly, and we understand that it means judgment for non-Christians, those who don't accept the free gift of grace. On the one hand, you have the sweetness of loyalty and devotion, but on the other hand, you have, you have the sourness of persecution and tribulation. We might think of the, of the two arms of God, his judgment and his mercy, and so you have grace and mercy on the one hand, but you have judgment and wrath as well. And they go together naturally. You can't get the sweet without the sour. Or some commentators take the honey to be more of the surface impression where the sour is the real thing. And if so, this would be ripping uh, false gospels, ripping the Pharisees, the itching ears of uh, people sitting in church pews, etc., Others say, well, in the mouth it sounds good, but it's tough to live it out in the stomach. And they point to the sin nature as an example. When you read Paul in Romans 7, you know, the gospel is sweet, but man, it sure has a, a tough uh, bit to it as well, right? When sin nature gets in the way, uh, the way it lives out often is sour. And ultimately, uh, Paul gives thanks for, for Jesus Christ uh, at the end of chapter 7. But there's certainly a battle that Paul describes with the spirit and the sin nature in Romans 7. Or maybe we think about how others respond to the gospel and to us. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, For we are to God the pleasing aroma 
of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And so as we walk through this life, right, following God, living indwelt by the, the Holy Spirit, sometimes the response is honey, sometimes the response, the reaction is sour. In any case, neither of these flavors is bland. And so the response to us should not be bland either, right? We're, the response to us should be honey or sour. And then finally in verse 11, John is told, uh, probably by the voice, that he must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. It's interesting, this is the same language we saw back in chapter 5, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 9, uh, to talk about the diversity of people who will worship Christ. But of course, that calls for prophesying again and calling all of them to repentance as well. The word again in verse 11 is intriguing, right? And it gets back to what, what's in this revelation. Is it the same revelation that he's been given before? Or is it uh, something that's slightly different, either a new message or a distilled version of what he had spoken uh, with this little scroll? It's also cool to connect 9 and 10 with 11. 9 and 10 is ingesting and consuming and appropriating God's word. Verse 11 is the next step, which is the need to convey it to all people. Uh, you think about Ezekiel in the Watchman chapter in chapter 33, or even early, it pops up in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Ezekiel is given a commission. Ezekiel has a scroll that he eats, and it, the natural uh, response to that is to convey what he's eaten to other people. It's also sort of interesting that when you eat something sour, it's going to naturally come back out. I'm not sure a picture of uh, vomiting is, is useful here uh, or totally appropriate, but it is interesting that if you eat something sour, it's going to be popping back out. One more small nugget, it's people, nations, language, and kings. So kings gets added to the list. And uh, if you've been following along, I've made the point that the seals are largely about Genesis and early Exodus. The trumpets were largely about Exodus and the plagues, it's, uh, as I'll describe in the next few weeks, are largely about government. And so you've got uh, 1 Samuel through Kings there. And it's interesting that, that if that is the case, that as we set the table for the seventh trumpet, which sets the table for the seven bowls, uh, that if it's judgment against human government, it's, it's pretty cool that the word kings gets tucked in here. Again, a lot of parallels here to Ezekiel 2 and 3. So the preterist see this as paralleling the falls of Jerusalem with the fall of Rome. The historicists look at the time of the Reformation for a lot of this and a bit before. Uh, they see chapter 9 as the Eastern Roman Empire being sacked, and then they see uh, the Western fall after that and the rise of the, the papacy in its place. And this is where they get into the Antichrist and its opposition to the Reformation. There's a lot of details that I'm not going to uh, share here, but uh, a couple that are pretty cool. Verse 2, they see the, the availability of the Bible with the printing press and the Reformation and translations as being uh, what's happening here. Verse 10, the reception of the Bible, which is sweet but bitter, including persecution. And then verse 11 is then seen as a new opportunity to preach with the Bible in hand. All right, that takes us to chapter 11 then. We'll read verses 1 and 2. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles 
they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. So verse 1, John is given a reed or staff like a measuring rod and told to measure God's temple and altar and to count the worshipers there. Measuring and counting is used throughout the scriptures to imply dominion, care and protection, dividing things into the holy versus the profane, or sometimes for destruction. It's even the case that measuring the people is akin to weighing their character. If we think about Daniel 5.27, that the people are found wanting, that they don't weigh much, figuratively speaking. Now, the reference to God's temple gets commentators all over the place. Uh, is it literal or figurative? Is it on earth or in heaven? Is it present or future? A couple things to note here. Uh, if we take a late date on Revelation, uh, something like 90 AD, well, by then the earthly temple had been destroyed. So then you're left with uh, something in the future or maybe a flashback to what had been destroyed 20 years earlier. In heaven, there's no temple, at least in the end. That's in chapter 21, verse 22, tells us there's no temple. But earlier verses do mention the temple and altars, etc. So I can't solve that for you, but I can just note, you can imagine where the debate would be on that. Keep in mind also that the temple is the Greek word naos, which means the holy place and the holy of holies. In the Old Testament, this is where only the high priest was allowed and where God was said to dwell among his people in his Shekinah glory. In the New Testament, it's representative of where Christ went to allow us access to God. And this is described in great, at great length in the book of Hebrews. And so it's certainly reasonable to argue that the temple is figurative here uh, for the dwelling place of God, uh, the church, and his people as it's done throughout the New Testament. In verse 2, he's told to exclude the outer court because it, it has been given to the Gentiles or the nations who will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Reminiscent of Jesus in Luke 21, starting in verse 22, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Of course, the preterist would see that verse and this verse uh, speaking to the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Rome. More broadly, the city is going to be trampled with only protection extended to those inside the temple. And so we have here non-Christians uh, controlling things, and they're not going to be protected from the judgments that follow. It's possible to read the uh, court of the Gentiles as those who are in the church but are not believers as well, that they're uh, part of the visible church but not part of the true church, and God will protect the believers in the capital C church but not all of those in the lowercase local, uh, C local church. The events here are taken by futurists to represent the first or second half of the Great Tribulation. Uh, that seven-year period that they um, see in the book of Revelations. Uh, others take it to be to represent the historical temple desecration by Antiochus, and we'll talk more about that later. And so the futurists here look at a rebuilt temple where Old Testament sacrifices have been reinstituted. Historicists see this as the true remnant church at the time of the Reformation. Measuring the temple then stands in for what constitutes the true church, 
The altar is the church's teaching on sacrifice and atonement, which get fixed in the Reformation, uh, according to the historicist. And those whom uh, points to the number of people in the true church. And in all of this, the word given in verse 1 becomes important because it's from God, that it's his standards by which these things are to be measured. All right, we're going to take another break here. Uh, If you're on Facebook, please like Pure Radio and friend me there. Remember, the podcasts are available on Facebook each week on my account, uh, always there on SoundCloud and Spotify under the Word Diet. Please interact with me on Facebook. Questions and comments are welcome. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a minute. Become a P3 partner. P3 partners are Pure Radio listeners who pray for Pure Radio each day. Provide financial support to our programmers. Promote Pure Radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 Partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 Partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 Partner today. Welcome back to The Word Diet. This week we're in Revelation 10 and 11, the parenthesis between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And we've reached chapter 11, verse 3, which is when uh, we get into the two witnesses and they're introduced here, their ministry as a life of faithful witness. So I'll read verses 3 through 6. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So three big questions to deal with here. What, what about all these numbers, the 1260 days? Second, the activity of the two witnesses. And then we'll close with who are the two witnesses? So first, let's do a little bit of math. 1260 days numerically equals 42 30-day months. 42 times 30 is 1260. So we've already seen a reference to 42 months in chapter 11, verse 2. And the Hebrew calendar had 30-day months. So 42 months equals 1260 days. Well, 42 months also equals three and a half years. And that uh, is used uh, in chapter 11, verses 9 and 11, talking about three and a half days. So that's interesting because days and years are often um, paralleled in the scriptures, so we can keep that in mind. Three and a half is one half of seven. Seven is a really important number uh, in, a, in the scriptures broadly, but apocalyptic in particular. So we have half of seven. And so are we talking about a literal uh, three and a half years? Or are we talking about three and, uh, three and a half as figurative for half of seven? The other reference that's cool pops up again in chapter 12, verse 14, where it says time, times, and half a time. Time is one, times is two. And half a time is half. That's three and a half also. Daniel 7.25 refers to this same time frame for Rome. 
Three and a half also equals the length of Christ's ministry, parallels that. And it's also the length of the drought uh, when Elijah's dealing with the prophets of Baal. And that's mentioned in Luke 4.25 and James 5.17 when Elijah prays and there is no rain. So what can be done with this? Well, the first is that it can be figurative for a finite, relatively short period of unrestrained wickedness. This is tribulation within the church age before Christ returns. It can be literal for half of a seven-year Great Tribulation, capital G, capital T, and this is something that the futurists uh, deal with. Uh, This is their angle. Uh, It's also a picture of Roman temple antics and or Antiochus Epiphanes of Syria. Uh, This is intriguing because uh, this gets referenced quite a bit in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7.25, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 12 verse 7 make references to the the same time frame. And the other passage to read here is Daniel 8, 9 through 14, where Antiochus is described as the little horn. Antiochus regarded himself as a missionary for Greek culture and did anything he could to destroy Jewish culture and religion. He put in a death penalty for circumcision and having a copy of the law. He desecrated the temple by erecting an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on it and turned the temple into public brothels. And this is what led to the Maccabean Revolt, which lasted for three and a half years, from June 168 to December 165 BC, and it's where we get the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah from. So at minimum, there are some really interesting parallels to what the Romans were doing under Caligula and Nero, uh, or uh, especially tons of parallels with Antiochus Epiphanes of Syria in the uh, 2nd century BC. Preterists also see this as the approximate period of the Jewish-Roman War, about three and a half years from 66 to 70 AD, uh, or perhaps pointing to the the persecution of Christians by Nero from 64 to 68 AD. The historicists have a a variety of ways to make this fit into uh, the Roman Church's rule. They differ on the specifics. Uh, Steve Gregg's book has a lot of the details on that if you care, but they do have various systems but disagree on what that would look like. Next, let's look at the activity of the two witnesses. So the first thing to note here is the Greek word is marturia, which is where we get the word martyr from, or a marquee, which is also today described more as a billboard. So a marquee is is something that's a billboard that uh, here would be advertising for Jesus, so to speak. And a martyr, of course, is one who dies for their faith. They're given power and prophesy for 1260 days. They're clothed in sackcloth, which is a picture of uh, mourning and call to repentance. It's what the prophets wore. We're told particularly about Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8 and John the Baptist in Matthew 3.4, two prophets of particular interest to us here. Verse 4, they're described as the two olive trees and lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These certainly hearken back to Joshua and Zerubbabel of Zechariah 4. It's also interesting that that passage symbolizes the Holy Spirit as well. So Zechariah 4 would be a really good reading this week. In light of the uh, Jew-Gentile connections in this passage, uh, you might be interested in re- reading Romans 11, 17 through 24 as well, which talked about the grafting of branches. So there may be some parallels there. Verse 5, there's death by fire from the mouths of the witnesses. 
and if anyone tries to harm them. Verse 6, they have the power to stop rain and to turn the waters into blood, much like the first plague in Egypt, and to inflict plagues on the earth. Again, broadly, uh, the use of plagues in Exodus to deal with Pharaoh. The power to stop rain, certainly reminiscent of Elijah, again, as we've talked about. And this can be taken literally, that these two witnesses literally have these powers, or more figuratively, for the power of God working through them to accomplish mighty works, to validate the gospel, and to bring glory to God. Verse 6 also says it's as often as they want, so they have unlimited power and access to God. One question that pops up here is, why are there two witnesses? And I think there are some answers in who the witnesses are standing in for, particularly if this is figurative. But especially if you take a more literal view on this, it's noteworthy that the disciples are sent out two by two. You look at Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, two are a more faithful witness of the church, uh, needed two or more witnesses in the book of Deuteronomy. And of course, two is stronger than one in both numerology and just everyday life. Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. In our discipleship curriculum, and actually all the groups that we lead uh, in, our, in the men's ministry at our church, uh, it's always co-led. And it's just, there's just so many advantages to having two leaders instead of one. So who are the two witnesses? And as we've seen throughout Revelation, the choice is basically the same uh, in terms of categories, right? We can see this as literal characters or literary figures, right? Do we read this as literal or figurative? Let's take the literal options first. So for some futurist, this is taken as the literal return of Moses and Elijah or someone like them. The references to water and to blood, and no rain certainly seem to point to that. Of course, Elijah and Moses are the ones at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 3. Uh, we also can bring in John the Baptist as a, a character like Elijah, Matthew 17, 10 through 13. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah's already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Uh, or in Luke 1.17, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Again, speaking of John the Baptist. So you've got someone who's going to be John the Baptist or Elijah-like, uh, uh, in in the in the form of these two uh, witnesses, the preterists see this as a as an historical prophet bearing witness to the Jews prior to Jerusalem's fall, and that's certainly plausible. But we don't have anything recorded uh, in in history uh, or uh, the Bible about that. So it's certainly possible, but it's not recorded for us. Another key passage to read here that we've alluded to is Malachi 3 and 4. If you read Malachi 3, 1 and 2, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Certainly this was fulfilled in Christ's first coming, may also be fulfilled in his second coming. And then really all of chapter 4 in Malachi is good reading here. Again, references to Moses in verse 4, Elijah in verse 5, very similar to what we've read in the Gospels and these other passages 
So I would definitely commend Malachi 4 to your reading for this week. For historicists and some futurists, they see this as figurative for the witnessing church, the godly church and state that align with Joshua being a priest and Zerubbabel being a prince or governor. That's really intriguing in light of what happens in chapter 13, where we have ungodly church and state, the two beasts that will show up in chapter 13. So that's an interesting parallel if that works. Uh, You could have law and gospel, Old Testament, New Testament, or you could have certainly the law and the prophets. That's very easy to see with Moses and Elijah. It's also interesting to tie in the three sets of uh, pairs of miracles in the Bible. You've got Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and John the Baptist and Jesus. And it's interesting that Joshua, Elisha, and Jesus all have the same name in the Hebrew and Greek, which means the Lord saves. And it's interesting that Moses, Elijah, and John the Baptist have a similar style in their ministries. But the sets of miracles, and then after Jesus, what happens in Pentecost seems to point forward to the gospel and the new covenant uh, following Jesus and Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I like what Hank Hanegraaff says. Uh, He's got a nice article called, Who are the Two Witnesses of Revelation in the Christian Research Journal? But at the end of it, he says, in light of biblical imagery then, the two witnesses are revealed not as two literal people, such as a future reincarnation of Moses and Elijah, but rather they are literary characters in John's apocalyptic narrative, representing the entire line of Hebrew prophets and testifying against Israel and warning of soon coming judgment of God on Jerusalem. Ultimately, the two witnesses form a composite image of the law and the prophets, culminating in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of a prophet and priest who is the earnest of all who are his witnesses and who will reign with him in a new Jerusalem wherein dwells righteousness. So I've covered the possibilities, but I'm not sure that brings much closure to you, uh, other than knowing, hopefully, maybe for the first time, that this, these things are quite debatable. We've got either a figurative or literal 42 months. We've got God allowing his figurative or literal witnesses the power to prophecy and share the gospel with persecution and suffering during the end of time, capital E, capital T, or throughout the church age. Certainly true of the church age, certainly true of persecution and suffering and our ability to prophesy and share the gospel, whether it comes uh, with another fulfillment in the very end of time, we're not sure. Certainly possible, but we're not sure. All right, great uh, great place to take uh, our last break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll be back in one minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in the middle of the uh, two witnesses in Revelation 11, so we're going to pick it up in verse 7 and read through verse 10. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. I really like the beginning of verse 7 when they have finished their testimony. God is in control here. Matthew Henry says they were immortal and invulnerable till their work be done. 
It's reminiscent of John 17, 4. Christ says, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Or Acts 20, 24, where Paul writes, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the tasks the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And the same is true of us. We're not leaving until God is done with us, until our work here on earth that God wills for us is done. Verse 7 also has the our introduction to the beast, the first of 36 references in Revelation. We'll talk a little bit more about the beast in a bit. It comes from the abyss, which we saw back in chapter 9, and will attack or make war with, overpower. This is actually the same word overcome that we saw so often in Revelation 2 and 3, and kill them. Now, it's interesting that God allows the use of force and violence against his followers. Of course, that's always the case with the martyrs. We also have the book of Job uh, wrestling with uh, Satan being allowed by God to harm Job. It's a long discussion we can't get into here about the reasons for suffering, but many times it's to accomplish greater purposes in God's kingdom, and that's the case here. Verse 8, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city figuratively. Here we're told expressly it's to be read figuratively, speaking of Sodom. Sodom is used frequently as a comparison to evil in other places. We look at Sodom as you know, the greatest evil, but then elsewhere in Scripture, uh, Jerusalem, for example, is compared to Sodom. Isaiah 1.10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And there Isaiah is talking to uh, the people of Israel. It's called Sodom. It's called Egypt. Of course, Egypt stands in for violence and oppression, We've seen in the middle of the trumpets, the trumpets compared to the plagues. And so the reference to Egypt here is obvious. And then by description, we're given Jerusalem, the city where the Lord was crucified. And so this stands in for the worldly system of unjust government, uh, which also connects back to Rome for for John's readers. Sodom represents immorality and injustice. Uh, for example, Ezekiel 16.49 says, This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. So while the sin of Sodom that's most famous is described in Genesis 18, Ezekiel 16.49 and 50 describes the sin of Sodom in much more disturbing terms and ones that hit a lot closer to home for the church and the world at large. Verse 9, non-Christians from every people, tribe, language, and nation, again echoing the more positive language of chapter 5, verse 9, and verse uh, chapter 7, verse 9, about what heaven will look like. Here they will gaze upon their bodies, could be a reference to TV, for example, and refuse them burial. Now, I think even for us, we understand that's not cool. But for them, right, for John's audience, this is a big cultural taboo. And perhaps the bodies were even being displayed. Matthew Henry says the malice of their enemies was not satisfied with their blood and death, but pursued even their dead bodies. The historicists uh, talk about this a lot with the Inquisition and the various heretics, so-called heretics that were uh, messed with for translating the word of God. John Wycliffe's body was exhumed and his body was burned. Uh, The ashes of John Huss were thrown in a lake. So some interesting parallels there. Verse 10, 
They gloat over them and celebrate by sending each other gifts. Of course, this represents the many times when Satan and the world thought they had victory, as they ultimately did, or most ultimately had, with the death of Christ. Uh, but that was defeated, as this will be as well. And then verse 10 concludes with, because the witnesses had tormented them, a phrase that appears in uh, Revelation seven times. But here it's the witnesses who are tormented rather than the non-believers. They're, being, they're hearing a truth they don't want to hear. They've also endured financial consequences in verse six with the drought that's described there. Now, what or who is the beast? We're only going to introduce that here, but he comes from the abyss to attack and kill the two witnesses. Most importantly, he's going to be in chapter 13 as the ten-horned, seven-crowned, headed beast. Uh, That will be synonymous with the abuse of political power and the corrupt state. Uh, He's not Satan or the devil, but he is a primary or maybe the primary agent of Satan representing human government which to John's audience would have been Rome, but for all time, it's uh, devastating human government, the power of the universe opposed to God and Christ. In other words, Antichrist. William Barclay says, as Christ is the incarnation of God and goodness, so Antichrist is the incarnation of the devil and evil. Though Satan is the opponent of God, he remains an an angel, whereas Antichrist is a visible figure upon earth in which the very essence of evil has become incarnate. So when we consider Antichrist and Antichrist, you might consider it with a capital A and a lowercase a. So we've got either a specific person in a single future period of time that's a capital A Antichrist, and that's the futurist view. You have the historicist view, which sees Antichrist as more of an office. And so they take a lot of shots at the Pope and the papacy uh, here in particular. Or it could be more broadly a satanic spirit working through various people in history. And that is true for all church age, for all types of tribulation throughout church history. Now, the beast is a common picture for the enemies of God and his people. Uh, There are three references to uh, the beast Rahab. And uh, one of those is Isaiah 51, 9. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Or Daniel 7, again, talks about uh, the beast. And uh, in, in the context, so again, Daniel 7 would be a nice read this week. The Antichrist to Paul is usually described in singular terms. Second Thessalonians 2 describes him at great length as a man of sin. But often in John's writing, it's described as the plural and kind of lowercase a, referring to those who spread heresy and a spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar? It is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. 1 John 4.3, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. 2 John verse 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. 
Jesus talked about the same. Mark 13, 22, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So the concept is singular and plural. And so let's make sure we keep both of those uh, in mind. All right, so we wrap up with verses 11 through 14 of chapter 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Verse 14 tells us it's the end of the second woe. The end of the first woe is chapter 9, verse 12. So here we have two down, one to go. And the third woe, or the seventh trumpet, is coming soon. And we'll do that next week, starting in verse 15. Also, a small thing before we get to the details, it switches to the past tense here. And it emphasizes for the reader that it's a done deal. God is sovereign. Verse 11, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up, terrifying those who saw them. Certainly a type of Christ's resurrection and the devil's hollow victory here. The historicists note that May 5th, 1514 was the Fifth Lateran Council, declaring that heretics were gone. But then Luther pens the uh, theses at Wittenberg in October of 1517, exactly three years and 180 days later. So they get very excited about the three and a half year interval there. Verse 12, a loud voice from heaven tells them to come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, reminiscent of Second Kings 2 with Elijah, while their enemies watched. So very similar to the ascension, uh, the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and how Elijah departs in 2 Kings 2. Or back to Revelation 1.7, which quotes Daniel 7.13. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Verse 13 has a severe earthquake at that very hour. So clear cause and effect, reminiscent of uh, Jesus' uh, crucifixion in Matthew 27. Collapsing one-tenth of the city, killing 7,000 people either a literal number or figurative for God's perfect but partial vengeance. It's interesting that one-tenth serves as a tithe of sorts. And then some parallels in the passage that are pretty intriguing. 7,000 people reverses the faithful remnant of 1 Kings 19.18 in the time of Elijah. And the most important thing here is that survivors are terrified and give glory to God in heaven, the first show of repentance in Revelation. The futurists are torn on this. They see this as either a shallow, short-run response or a true response from Jews. But in any case, this reverses the usual remnant language. Here it's 90% who are saved, or at least express fear and, uh, of God and gl give glory to him. Bauckham says it's not the faithful minority, but the faithful majority here. And what works? What causes the repentance? What, what leads people to that? Well, it's the combination. It's the miracle plus the faithful ministry of the two witnesses. Barclay says here, unbelievers were won by the sacrificial death of the witnesses and by God's vindication of them. Here is the story of the cross and the resurrection all over again. 
So tremendous parallels to Christ, three and a half years, he's killed in Jerusalem, dead for three days in resurrection, and the city is judged as Jerusalem would be in 70 AD. And for us, the punchline is the call to faithful witness despite persecution and suffering. God will look after his own, reward his servants, and continue with his sovereign plans. But people are persuaded by the acts of God, the miracles of God, and the faithful witness of the martyrs. The same is true of us today. It should be an inspiration to us as we live our lives every day in faith. Lord, be with us today. Help us live the sort of lives that bring people to you. When they see your work in creation and they see your work in our lives, they'll fear you and love you and embrace your grace. All right, great stuff. Please uh, interact with me on Facebook. Find the old podcasts on Spotify under the word diet. And we hope you'll join us next week on the word diet.